Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod in conversation with me, Amanda Carpenter. And for our first in this new series of conversation pods, we're absolutely thrilled to be joined by Steve Backshall, explorer, adventurer, conservationist, campaigner, writer and broadcaster, and so much more. Known to millions as the host of The Deadly 60 and more recently for his expedition of firsts. Steve, welcome to Planet Pod and thank you so much for coming. No, thank you very much for having me. It's really hard to know where to start. Um, so I wondered if we could perhaps Think a little bit about your experience over the last few years. You've been travelling and looking and reporting on the natural world for a long time now. Do you feel that your relationship with, with wildlife and the natural world has changed? And what are some of the changes that you've seen over those years of, of, of doing what you've been doing? Well, I think the first part of your question kind of gets to the heart of it. I've been doing this for a long time now. I started in the, in the late 1990s. And so a lot of the places that I first filmed in as a, you know, beginner, I am going back to over and again over the years and seeing how they're changing and seeing how they're changing in real time. And very, very few of them are for the better. Some of them are dramatically worse. So the classic example for me would be, would be Borneo. I did my first expedition in Borneo when I, in 1990, when I was just out of school. And what I found was a jungle island, which was pretty much pristine. You could fly for hours over the forest and see below you an unbroken carpet of broccoli and asparagus and, you know, just these forests going on for an eternity. When I next went back in 1997, it was the year of the Great Burn, which was the first time, I think, that the burning of the world's tropical forests really came to the public attention. And it was predominantly Borneo, New Guinea and Sumatra that were literally on fire. And there was a cloud of smoke that hung over most of Southeast Asia in parts you couldn't see for more than 100 metres on the streets of Singapore, for example. And that was all down to deforestation and the burning of lands to make way for plantations, primarily palm oil. As I've been back successively over the years, I've seen a, 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 an island that's gone from this perfect, pristine jungle island to a place which is pretty much plantations and desert. And unlike many other jungle islands, Sumatra, for example, which is volcanic in origin, where you have got rich, fertile soils in Borneo, the second a plantation has began, begun to, uh, to, to lose its usefulness, it just vaporizes. The soil is so thin, it's sandy beneath. There's very, very little actual organic substrate and it washes away and you're left with desert. And so now, this year, I went back to Borneo and I flew for hours and hours and looked down on nothing but desert and smoldering remains of what once was my, my childhood dream. And I'm seeing this repeatedly in lots and lots of the places that I first filmed in in the early 90s or mid 90s. I'm, I'm seeing how much they're changing in the lifespan of one person and it's it's catastrophic so what can we do about that because we've had a huge amount of conversation recently about declaring climate emergencies about you know actually the climate crisis is now something people talk about and acknowledge you know we've got some political will not much but some political will behind it but my sense you know having been in this field for a long time as well is that while people 
talk about this stuff, there's not much real action. So what would be your kind of, you know, what do you think we need to be doing? What are some of the calls that you've been making that we think our politicians and, and, and leaders should be listening to? It's, it's a good question. I don't see a huge amount of political will, certainly not from our governing parties. At the moment, I think that they are so overwhelmed with other topics, which you know, may seem to be so much more important, that when, when they are talking about, about climate and about habitat loss, it, it is really, you know, excuse the expression, but so much hot air. Uh, I think that there is, there is an awful lot of, of talk and very little action when it comes to, to big government and big business. Big business. When it comes to individuals, uh, I think I would use the, the, um, the Borneo example as a way that we can pragmatically make a difference ourselves. And um, what I very much throw myself into from a fundraising perspective over the last decade or so has been forest purchase. It's the thing that I see as being the most pragmatic thing that, that one individual can do to make a very tangible difference. So the forests in Borneo are very much being chopped down to make way for palm oil plantations, but they are, they're owned. They are for sale. They have to be bought in order to be turned into plantations. And if you get in there first and you offer enough money, then you can buy those forests. And so uh, it, together with a charity called the World Land Trust, I've been uh, working, getting as much money together as we can to buy and retire big sections of forest. And when you do that, you don't just offset your carbon. You also provide an existing habitat for thousands of species that are really struggling. And we don't just do uh, land buys in Borneo. We do them in everywhere that there is tropical forest. And to me, right now, that is the, the one most direct thing that I see that I can do and that anyone else can do. You know, in some places, we can get an, an acre of rainforest for £100. Well, anyone can go out and earn £100. And, you know, a football field of, of rainforest, that's, that's an awful lot of biodiversity can, can live there. And I would What about the local population? Because very often, you know, we know that a lot of carbon offsetting, we should talk about that in a minute because I'm sure we've got views on this, but we know a lot of carbon offsetting is about just purchasing bits of land. What about the communities that live there? Because my experience of being in, in Asia long before that was that actually what was happening was logging. Before land clearance, we had logging. But logging was about control management of the forest to prevent provide income. So if you buy and retire bits of rainforest, what about the communities that live in and around those rainforests? How do we support those communities? So if there are communities living on those forests, it's going to be being passed back to their stewardship rather than being turned okay. into a national park. And in Borneo, if we stick with the Borneo example, um, the, the people that live there, the Penan, the Punan, <coughs> excuse me, who have been living there for thousands of years, they have themselves been lying down in front of the in front of the chainsaws and in front of the diggers to try and prevent these forests being cut down. It is their home. It is everything that they they need, and they themselves have been campaigning like crazy for the entirety of my lifetime to try and make sure that those forests remain intact. So the last thing that I would ever say is that we're looking to disinherit local peoples. Far from it. What we do is we work in partnership with local NGOs, and those NGOs could either be looking to sequester. The, uh, the forest that we're buying to existing national parks, or they could be handing it back to, to local stewardship. And so that can have a beneficial effect both for the, the local people who themselves prize those forests, who don't want to be disinherited, and for, for the planet. So where does um, politics come into this? Because I know you were very active around the Environment Bill, and obviously one would look at what's going on in 
you know, in South America with the, the deforestation. And a lot of that's to do with, you know, presidents saying, well, this is good for my economy. So there are, there's a huge amount of politics in this, global politics, national politics, local politics. How do we shift the political dial? What can we do to actually say, politicians, it's time you, you, you behave differently? I mean, what, what would you be calling for? It's, it's a huge question. If I was to look on the broadest possible scale, to me, it is about shifting our imperatives as a species. We need to stop registering our success purely on gross national product, and we need to start thinking beyond that. We need to start looking at what we're going to be able to provide for the next generation and the generation after that. But also for, for people around now, you know, what does gross national product mean to your average person in the street? Is it not more important for them that they have education and healthcare and that they have a good life? Those things should all be a part of how we rationalize the success of a nation. And until we, we do that, it's going to be very, very difficult because you know, there isn't always an, an economically viable way to provide right now uh, sustainable lives for everyone. We need to be thinking in a much bigger, broader way about how we live our lives and how we determine the success of our societies. And I think in terms of you know, what we need to do, first and foremost, it's kind of, you know, I may not agree with all of Extinction Rebellion's methods, but their, their desire to bring about change by any means necessary is, is I think, incredibly important. And this new wave of activism that I see at the moment, uh, there's a lot of people who are letting the people in power know that this is important to them. And I think that eventually that has to have some benefit. You know, we're looking at a, a general election. The people who are going to be running for office need to know that these things are important to us and that we are going to vote based on the things that matter. And the things that matter to me most, more than just about anything, are that we are maintaining and developing and improving our environments. So you'd be a supporter of um, that kind of revolution and activism that we've seen so much on the streets and both, you know, at, at the level with XR, but also young people, because I know you spend a lot of time talking to young people. You've got a very large youth audience. I mean, would you be encouraging them to be activists, to take part in climate strikes? We talk about climate strikes a lot on the pod. Um, that, for me, feels like a good way of getting those young people engaged in that debate. Is that something that you think is worthwhile? Absolutely. And I, I am so, so, I have so much optimism and so much hope when I see young people who are, who are just filled with ambition and passion and a desire to change the world and make it a better place. I have to be quite careful in my position with, with how much I throw myself into, into activism. I think that no matter how much I, I want to be chaining myself to railings and, and <laughs> gluing myself to buildings, I had to be aware that, that right now I am just beginning for the first time in my career to have the ability to really sit down and speak to politicians from across the board. You know, I've sat down and had conversations with, with Michael Gove, with uh, you know, people who have the ability to make a difference. The second I, you know, give myself the, the label of firebrand, I lose that. The second I get arrested for public, dis public disorder is the second that I no longer can travel to America and no longer talk to the people there about what's important to them. I have to be canny about how I, how I do this right now. I think there is, there is a real benefit to the fact that I've been around for a while. People are starting to, to know who I am and they're more likely to, to engage in conversation with me. And I need to be willing to listen. And the more I shout and scream 
and make a fuss, the less that's likely to happen. Well, that's the important thing about a revolution, because we need people to lead at all levels, don't we? We need activism on the streets, because that sends a very strong message to our politicians. Um, and we need people in leadership roles and in roles of influence, such as the one you have, to be saying those things in different forums and speaking to the politicians directly and to, as you say, much wider groups. So there's a role for both of those levels of activism and engagement, isn't there? Can I ask you, how do you cope with the the fact that you must, by definition, fly. You have to, because a lot of what you're doing requires you to go all over the world. How do you manage that? And do you carbon offset? And do you think that's a valuable thing to do? Uh, and are we ever going to get to a point where we can you know, have a sustainable world where we're not flying? I mean, can't sadly all go on Greta's boat to New York, can no, we? No, of course. Uh, this is a subject that obviously I have to face every single day. You know, I, I have people on Twitter shouting me down every single time I, I even dare to speak about climate because I fly. And to a certain extent, I can completely understand that. You know, I, I grew up believing that to travel was a, was a good thing. I come from a traveling family. Both my parents worked in the airlines. My, my, my grandfather, uh, his job was setting up airlines in Africa. And, and it was always encouraged when I was young to believe that, that traveling was a positive thing, that it, it broadened the spirit. And I've worked for 20 years to get myself into a position where I have this job and I have this living. And do I just stop that now? Do I just cut it dead? Um, there's a part of me that says yes. But then this year, I've had the opportunity to make programs on rhino poaching, plastic pollution, and on climate change, and on deforestation, and on palm oil, to go to these places and bring back footage of the problems and to show them to not just several million people in this country, but possibly half a billion people around the world. If I was to stay home and you know, stay on the right side of, of my conscience, then that would go, that would go completely. And I guess the, the, the wider thought is, are we really saying that climate scientists shouldn't fly? Are we really saying that, that conservationists, environmentalists and activists should never fly? Or are we saying that we need to make sure that if we're flying, that we are providing a viable offset? Now, I voluntarily offset and I have done for 10 years. I think it should be law. I think that the, the, the Green Party has now uh, a suggestion that there should be a stepped tax, that frequent flyers should be paying more in terms of stuff that is, is genuinely going towards the right kind of offsetting projects. I would be 100% behind that. Not only do I offset my own flights, but my, uh, my companies that make my television programs offset all of our programs. And that's not just the flights, it's everything down to our cooking fuel. And we make sure that the offsets we do are in the kind of things I believe in, exactly what I was talking about, purchasing forests, purchasing wetlands, purchasing peatlands, and protecting them. Um, that said, this is a curse I will always bear, and I totally understand it. And I, you know, I know I'm gonna have to have this same conversation many, many times. But until I can find a way of, of doing this job, which I, I see having so much positive effect without flying, I'm just gonna have to make sure that I do my very best to offset as well as I can. I guess it's about finding a balance, isn't it? I mean, and I think that that's, you know, it's been sometimes been the curse of the green movement is that it's seen as an extreme movement and, and it's, you know, it's not necessarily very people friendly. So we have to have a balance, don't we? We have to balance between a life that's livable, that we enjoy and being careful and mindful of our planet and its needs. And if we all take a responsible attitude and have that balance, then, then we'll all be in a better place. Okay. On that, sorry, I, yeah. I have to say, I think that um, the green movement now, it seems to me, I mean, obviously there are, there are 
extremes to the green movement, but most of what I see um, is kindness. I, I see a tremendous amount of kindness. Most of the people that I see within the, the green movement are very well educated. There's a lot of people who are doctors and professors and absolute experts in their field who are, who are working based on peer-reviewed science that is proving every single thing that's driving yeah. their, their ethics. And when I look around at other very self-serving politics and politicians, and I compare them to the people within the green movement, there's no comparison. The, the, the Greens are, by and large, trying to work for a better planet for everybody. It's an altruistic thing. It's, it's a, a thing that is, that is caring. And we see that so rarely in, in politics as a, 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 at large. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, you, you can't have a passion and care for the planet without caring for those that live on it, both, both human and animals. Thank you so much for your time and for your um, inspiring and thoughtful words. If we had one call to action to listeners, what would you ask people to do tomorrow? What's the one thing you think they can do to, to help move us forward in this debate? I, I think it's about engaging. It's about engaging, finding out as much as you possibly can it's become very clear that our, our public messaging is becoming muddied. People don't know who to listen to. People don't know what to believe. So do your own research. You know, don't just blindly believe anything. Go out and find out for yourself. Um, and once the facts are in front of you, take action. And that action could be as simple as making sure that you throw away your rubbish. It could be something as big as starting a petition or making sure that you are standing up and shouting and having your voice heard. But it has to start from understanding. And in this world where messages are so muddied, I think the best possible thing you can do is find out for yourself. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.